as we venture into the murky waters of everything you've been told never to bring up at holiday dinner. You'll need a guy, someone you can trust, a battle-tested, common-sense leader who knows that an extra pair of dry socks just might save your life. That wise old sage has arrived, and he is shouting the Schmidt Show battle cry. Schmidt heads unite! Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, time appropriate greeting wherever it is that you are listening to The Schmidt Show. Episode, I think, number 47 of The Schmidt Show podcast. My guest is uh, someone we actually heard on the podcast last week as part of a special episode from that has been uh, brought over from my terrestrial show, uh, Todd Benzman. Todd Benzman is the, uh, a senior national security fellow for the Center uh, for Immigration Studies. Um, he is, prior to joining the Center for Immigration Studies, he has led Homeland Security intelligence efforts um, in the public sector. He has worked with policy and intelligence operations, um, all kinds of, of journalism work, and has been traveling around the world talking about uh, or learning about and investigating uh, immigration, national security, all of those sorts of things, how those two intersect with each other and so on. So, uh, Todd, welcome to the show. And uh, I guess let's start with this. Tell us a little bit about how you got your start into this world of national security and immigration and, and journalism. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, I started out as a reporter. I was a journalist for 23 years, and I worked for the Dallas Morning News for 10 of those years. It was a major newspaper, and I was covering the FBI when 9-11 happened. I was, I was assigned to cover... Um, federal government, uh, law enforcement. And in Dallas, we had American Airlines headquartered. So, of course, American Airlines being uh, the owner of the aircraft that were hijacked, I was drawn directly and quickly into the vortex of the whole 9-11 investigation mm. and counterterrorism and terrorism, Islamic terrorism and national security. So, for the rest of my journalism career, I was uh, national, covering national security and counterterrorism. I left the newspaper a few years later and uh, joined Hearst Newspapers, uh, particularly their property down uh, in San Antonio, which covers the border. And that's how I got involved in border security and border reporting. Spent a lot of time um, all along the Texas border. I live in Texas even now. Uh, wrote uh, many, many um, investigative pieces about you know gun running and you know the Mexican drug civil war, uh, drug civil war that they had back in the mid two thousands, and uh, was recruited from there to join the Texas Department of Public Safety. Mm. Intelligence Counterterrorism Division as a result of my reporting. They wanted me in there. Um, so I said, okay. And I spent the next 10 years managing uh, teams of intelligence analysts that did national security, counterterrorism mainly, and a lot of border security as well. I got involved in uh, lots of operations down there and, um, about a year ago, I was recruited by the 
Center for Immigration Studies. And so that's where I am now. I work for this think tank out of D.C. and still doing border security, so national security. Is is this the, I mean, is this something that, you know, as a kid you grew up wanting to be an investigative reporter? You saw, you know, Walter Cronkite or, or Dan Rather or somebody on the news and, and wanted to be like them? Or or is this something more that, that you kind of fell into? No, no. I want, you know, I read, I was a guy who was um, steeped in um, the works of Ernie Pyle and Ernest Hemingway mm. and, uh, you know, quite taken with um, the whole profession of journalism and, you know, foreign correspondence and all the drama and adventure that goes along with that. So I wanted to do it, got my degree in journalism, got a master's degree in journalism as well, and, you know, had a full career doing it. And started just heading that direction. So you said you ended up with Center for Immigration Studies. They actually recruited you. They reached out to you to, uh, I'm assuming somebody saw your reporting somewhere and said, hey, we need to have this guy on our on our team. He seems to know what he's talking about. I mean, is that how that worked? or, or... Yeah. Uh, well, what happened was I, I went for a second master's degree at the Naval Postgraduate School, and I did a, my thesis on immigration from the Islamic world. Uh, human smuggling from Islamic countries over the U.S. southern border. And that was released in 2015, late 2015, early 2016, right as Donald Trump was uh, ramping up his campaign. The thesis got quite a lot of notice uh, because of uh, Donald Trump. And um, I found myself being invited to, you know, speak at symposiums and to talk about my thesis and write about it. And they got wind of it. They read it. They were like, we want to have this guy on board. And so that's kind of where that kind of how that happened. I see. Now, of course, the the issue of immigration is a is obviously a very highly politicized issue and a highly politicized topic. You uh, I've read a lot of your information, a lot of your stuff on on the Center for Immigration Studies site and, and done a little bit of digging to 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 try to familiar for familiarize myself with you, um, and oftentimes the the world of journalism gets accused of being a bunch of radical leftist nut jobs and whatnot by the people on the right, and you know all of that whole sort of thing. Your writing seems to be, you know, from what I can tell, fairly down the middle. Do you do you try to avoid the politicizing of of these various issues, or is it is it is it even possible to do that in in today's world? Well, my journalism background, you know, trained me. I was trained uh, formally in neutrality mm. and in the importance of uh, facts and regardless of where on the political divide they fall and to just simply report facts so that they can be used mm. by decision makers and, uh, you know, a, a, an educated public. So that's just sort of ingrained in me. Um, Occasionally, uh, you know, I'll, I'll offer opinion because I'm not really a journalist anymore. I'm a writer and a researcher right. for a, a think tank that, that um, often argues for less immigration right. so, and, and more border security. So I'm a homeland security guy and an analyst. So I try to um, stick to the middle. I try to get both sides of things and, um, you know, sometimes – Oxes get gored, uh, you know, even on the conservative right. 
and on the on the left always and right um, you know so it is what it is you know so I, I do try to just kind of keep it cool now you said the Center for Immigration Studies often argues for for less immigration. Um, I've made the argument, and I talked. I think you and I talked about this the last time we had had you on for an interview. I've argued that that one of the things that that would be helpful to deal with the issues of immigration would be to actually make it easier for people to come to the United States legally than it is for them to come here illegally. And I, I genuinely feel, and I don't have any science or, or research to back this up, but I genuinely feel like that would actually create a, a lower um, immigration overall numbers, but would also then allow for um, the illegal immigration to get under control as well. Am I right there or, or am I just pie in the sky thinking there? I mean, you're partly right. One of the one of the primary drivers of illegal immigration is poverty. Mm. And much of the world is impoverished, unfortunately. We happen to live in, in uh, one of the wealthier countries, one of the wealthiest, maybe the wealthiest country in the world. So there's that fundamental imbalance draws people to the United States. And so at some point, even if you were to have like something like a Bracero program, like that they had we had in the '60s, or um, it it still strikes me that it wouldn't be enough to sate global demand to be here mm. and to work here. But I think I mean you're not completely off. I I think that the re another reason people come illegally to the country and over the border and you know break their visa agreements and all the rest of that is because you know, we, we have caps, fairly low caps, hmm. on legal immigration, uh, particularly for um, workers. And, uh, you know, when the lower those caps are, the, the, the higher the you know, likelihood that you're going to have illegal, immigra illegal immigration. Right. I just don't know that, um, that there is any uh, high number or any magical number that of uh, legal immigration that you could set that still wouldn't um, require people to sneak in over the border well, uh, because there's, there aren't, there aren't enough and, the and whole for, world wants to come here. Right. And for me, that's the, that's the interesting thing uh, in this discussion on in immigration in general is, is we have so many on the left, whether it's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez claiming that, that you know we're essentially running concentration camps on par with with Auschwitz or or others, um, and and yet there's there's this just massive flow of people that still want to come here, and and so I, I have to kind of wonder if it's really that terrible of a place, why would the immigrants want to keep coming here? So it has to that tells me that that it's really not that terrible of a place, that these situations really aren't that bad, or at the very least, they're much better than where they're coming from. And and then if that's the case, then what do we do to to deter people from from continuing to, to come here? Or is it even possible to deter, to deter people from coming? Yeah, it is. It is possible to deter people. We do it all the time. It's it's, it's called high consequence policies. Mm. Uh, we have, uh, but, but quickly getting to your point about, um, you know, the terminology like concentration camps, it's, it's absurd that 
the the idea on its face that masses of people would be flowing into a country that's going to put them in concentration camps, right? Right. <laughs> concentration camps. That's hyperbole. That's you know nobody's rushing to get to North Korea to get into their concentration camps. I can guarantee that. Right. And yeah. No, nobody was rushing to get into the Nazi concentration camps. They were all going the other way. Right. So it's it's just obviously hyperbole and unhelpful to call our uh, detention centers concentration camps. They're overcrowded because we have a, a crisis going on with unbelievable numbers, historically high numbers of uh, illegal immigrants just rushing in over the border. So you're just going to get into a bind every once in a while where things aren't ideal. The last time I, I chatted with you, the most recent article you had written was on the idea of of immigrants coming from all over the world that were sneaking through the southern border. It wasn't just South Americans or, or Central Americans or Mexicans coming to the United States, but from all over the world. Um, it is, is, I'm assuming that's not changed in the last couple of weeks since you and I spoke, but is, is that a bigger issue to deal with this, this, um, the kind of global immigration or glo- global migration towards the United States, or is the bigger issue dealing with the South American, Central American and, and, and Mexican, uh, immigrants? Well, the higher numbers are going to always come from the closest in countries. Right. So Mexico, obviously, that's our number one, right? And then as you go south, you get higher numbers, uh, or you, you get you know the second and third hires uh, from Central America. So our immediate neighbors are going to be the source of our highest numbers just because of geography and, and expense. Right. Uh, but we will always draw migrants from all over the world, and we always have, who um, have the means and um, persistence to get here over really long distances. Um, the further away you have to, the further you have to travel, the more difficult it is. There's more obstacles, like you know, you have to get through airport customs on both ends. Uh, coming and going, we have the Atlantic Ocean, and it's expensive. Mm. You have to buy airline tickets, and you have to get hotels and food and transportation all the way along the way. So you're going to have, um, you're just going to have naturally fewer the further you go. But having said that, you know we have thousands and thousands of people beyond just Latin America and the Western Hemisphere every year who are making it to our southern border. They just do. They, they, have, right. they have the where, the wherewithal. They find the money, and they, and they do it. Now, one of the th- and I want to come back. I, I forgot a, a follow-up question that I wanted to ask about some of the, the southern border stuff. Of course, you and I agree that, that the, the, the character is – characterization or categorization of the of the various holding facilities as as uh detention camps or 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 concentration camps or something like that is obviously absurd um but i'm i'm guessing with the overwhelming number of people coming it does maybe make conditions a little bit difficult um for these various detention facilities and things like that what's the answer there or is there a solution other than just 
spending a bunch of money and building more, or do we do we maybe stop them before they even come in and just say, hey, look, we don't have any room for you. You can come across the border all you want. We're just going to have to pick you up and throw you back because we just don't have the room to to offer any sort of assistance. Well, this, this gets back to I didn't really quite finish an earlier question of yours, which is, you know, what's how do you deter and can you deter? And one of the most effective ways of deterring uh, immigration, especially close in illegal immigration, is through detention. If you know, if you're coming in and you know that you are going to be in detention for the most of the length of, of your uh, wait for the hearing or throughout the period of your hearing or for a long period of time, you're not going to come. You don't, nobody wants to stay in detention for a year or two. Uh, so it's, it's that release. It's the, it's that you can be released soon. Mm. That is that is the um, the magnet, and so when we're talking about detention, we're talking about bed space for the ability to hold people for longer periods of time. And if you don't have bed, and that's our problem, is we don't have the bed space. It's like a a bathtub that is just overflowing constantly, mm. right? The yeah, so much is, of it can run through the little overflow thing, but not fast enough. So you're going to dump it on the floor eventually. Yeah. So it's all just dumping over the sides and that's what we're doing. We're just, you know, dumping over the sides and everybody's just released. They're waved right in with a notice to appear. Well, I know but, you, uh, I know you've had some, some contact with some of the actual immigrants that are in these various caravans and, and things like that. Is this, is, is this a strategy? I mean, are they intentionally trying to overwhelm the, the Southern border uh, and the various facilities and things like that, just so they know that, Hey, well, that we know they don't have room for us, so they can't keep us more than a few days anyway. So if we just, you know, force enough people in there, it will kind of force some of the rest of us to, to spill over the side, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. They, they are very well aware that we're, at, we're over capacity and that we can't hold them. So that's why they're coming. They're coming to be released into the interior. And regardless of what happens to their court cases, right. whether they win or lose, they get to live in, in the country illegally forever, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, because there's, they, most of them aren't ever going to show up for their court dates anyway. Right. So, you know, I just came back from... Um, Juarez, where I interviewed a bunch of uh, migrants who were subject to the um, wait. It's called the Remain in Mexico policy. Yeah, and then this is your most recent article, which I'll have linked to the in the show notes for those that are listening. If you want to read any of this stuff from Todd, um, I'll have this article linked. But this is yeah, you actually talked about this in your most recent article. Yeah, very very instructive. It lays bare the realities of. Uh, how people come to decisions about whether to go to the U.S. or or go home, because what the policy did is it it requires that people who apply for asylum at the border don't get to wait it out inside the United States; they have to wait it out in Mexico. Mm. That is a massive deterrent. Is that a mass? Is it a deterrent for the Mexican government as well, or just more for the immigrants? Well, I'm just ta- I'm just speaking for the immigrants. Okay. The Mexicans certainly don't like it either, but right. I'll get to that in a second. But the 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 migrants were expecting, and they told me this in my interviews with them. They were expecting, like everybody before them, to be waved in. 
Um, then even if they lose their asylum cases, they're still in, we'll never get them out. Right. That's what they were counting on. But if you lose your asylum case while you're in Mexico, <laughs> you obviously don't get the benefit of living in the United States. Yeah. And you, you don't know, really get to even illegal. stay in Mexico if you're not Mexican. Right. And they, they, the Mexicans don't really want you either, although they, they would take you. They have right. jobs there. Um, so that is a high consequence deterrent right there. It's, right. It literally foils the plan. Yeah. It absolutely foils the plan. Well, and you, you in your in your sub headline, you talk about the UN buses loading up the Central Americans and taking them back home. That's got to be a massive deterrent as well. I mean, you you make it all the way in this caravan, the thousands of miles across Mexico, just to be put on a bus and hauled back to where you started. Yeah, well, the fact that I mean, we don't know how many uh, migrants that were returned to Mexico are going home. But the best indicator that we have that that policy is working, that they are returning home, is the fact that the United Nations um, IOM, it's called the um, International Office for Migration, is providing bus service, free bus service, loading up these buses and driving people all the way back to Honduras and Guatemala. If there weren't significant enough numbers of people actually returning home under this, uh, they, that would not be happening. That's a great indicator that there are large numbers of migrants returning home. And when they return home, they're going to be telling all their neighbors, yeah, the good, the getting is not good anymore. You can't get in. We came home. We gave up. Mm. We couldn't get in. They stopped us. Um, and that'll stop other people from coming. And ultimately, the messaging, the grapevine messaging is what will halt this crisis. Mm. So... So it's a very, the weight in Mexico in terms of high consequence deterrence is extremely powerful. So people are returning home. If, if we can get these folks to kind of come to the realization that it's not going to just be an easy entrance into the United States and, and they will likely end up being either sent back or, or maybe convince them to stay in the first place, does that create, in, in your mind, would that create a higher desire for them to, to maybe solve the problems of their own countries back at home? I mean, you read about the, the murder rate in Honduras, and I mean, it's, it's astronomical, the, the number of people that are killed in Honduras um, on any given day. And, and we're, you know, obviously lots of turmoil, lots of just general tragedy in a country like Honduras. If, if we keep sending them back, are they, are they maybe, or, I mean, is that part of the hope in this that they would, would, you know, for lack of a better term, rise up and, and do something about the, the government and the issues in their own country first, or is that just not a reality personally, either? Personally, I'm not optimistic that, that anything like that would happen. Okay. Uh, you know, those countries have been, uh, you know, for millennial, um, you know, just basket cases, uh, for a lot of different reasons, you know, uh, but, but I don't think, I don't think that they're going to be, uh, quickly fixable. Um, those, those governments are, um, too dysfunctional. They're so dysfunctional. The economies are terrible. Uh, but I will point out though, that, um, the three migrants that I talked to who are returning, don't have to return to places that they said were, were too terrible to live in, mm. but they're choosing to do that anyway. I, I found that very interesting that for countries that are just absolutely intolerable, uh, so intolerable that they must go to the United States, uh, they 
had options to live in other safer parts of Mexico, Costa Rica. They could go to Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Peru, you know, lots of places that are, that are right. uh, ostensibly safer than their hometowns, but they're not. They're going yeah. back to their, their supposedly terrible and terrifying hometowns. So that makes me wonder really just how bad they are to live in those places. Well, and, and I mean, that, go back. right. That, I mean, that does raise a fair question. Now, my daughter sponsors, we, my wife and I sponsor a couple of children through, uh, through world vision, um, over in, in Africa. And my daughter sponsors one in, in Nicaragua. And she went and visited her, visited her sponsor child, uh, about a, I think it was about a year ago in, in January ish, something like that. Um, and, and she said the, the conditions certainly aren't what we're used to here in the United States, but she said, generally the, the children seemed happy, you know, they, you know, they seem to be, um, you know, fairly, uh, stable families and things like that. They just, they, they just don't have, you know, the, 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 uh, the amenities, if you will, that we have here in the U S but overall, you know, she said, yeah, they, you know, they, they have to ride their bikes to school. They don't have bus services and things like that. And, and, you know, they don't have, you know, air conditioned buildings and things like we've got, but overall she said that they seem, you know, generally, you know, like say stable and, and happy. Um, are you, you've, you've spent quite a bit of time down there in, in, in Central America, Panama, Honduras, Guatemala, that area. What would, what would your general kind of categorization of, of the folks down there be? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, those societies are for the most part poor. There's a lot of, uh, peasantry, you know, subsistence farming. It's, it's, I don't blame anybody who lives there for wanting to try their hand at getting into the United States uh, or some other country that um, you know has a higher standard of living. Uh, that's just a natural thing. I think if I lived down there, I'd try it. Right. The, the problem is that uh, you, and, and you also have government dysfunction and corrupt cops. Uh, you know, I had a Panamanian police officer try to shake me down for mm. 20 bucks, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, I'm a gringo. Right. Uh, so you can imagine, you know, what goes on. Yeah, you're a, uh, you're a millionaire in their mind, I suppose. <laughs> right. But, um, but you know, the, the, the issue is kind of like you, you, you picture the um, lifeboats around the Titanic in the movie. And you've got a lot of people who are swimming around and they're going to die in that icy water. And you can certainly understand their plight and you want to pull as many as you possibly can without jeopardizing your own lifeboat. So at some point, you know, wealthy countries have to be able to determine how many are going to, they're going to let in and how many are going to come into the lifeboat. And the, the, the brutal fact is that people have to get left in the water or everybody dies. It's the kind of the thing. And the, the whole world is, you know, most of the world lives in poverty. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, decisions have to be made and they're hard decisions to make because right. you're looking right into the eyes of like the people that you sponsor. They're, they're real people. Yeah. And it's just very difficult to make those choices, but they have to be made. They just have to be made. Your line of work that that's, that's had to have at some point brought you kind of face to face with that with that genuine story of, of tragedy or, or, 
loss or or sadness or whatever i mean how do you how do you deal with that i mean is that something you just have to just a little bit more of a personal question but i mean do you do you kind of have to compartmentalize i mean at some point i'm a fairly compassionate person i would want to help them do what i can to to uh, you know offer assistance and guidance and and things like that how do you as a as a reporter try to kind of or a writer stay away from that or or separate yourself from that cuz i mean you obviously like you say you can't help everybody you know you pull too many people in the lifeboat you sink it um, how do you just can't, I, you know, look, I've, uh, I had a 23 year career doing journalism and, um, you know, I have, uh, interviewed probably hundreds of war refugees and migrants and, um, people in trouble all over the world. And over time, what happens is that you just learn to kind of compartmentalize your feelings out of it because mm. you're doing, you're there doing a job. And, um, you know, you, you certainly hear stories that tug at your heartstrings, but you just have to withdraw from that or you can't do your work. Mm. So that you just learn how to do that, unfortunately. And, um, I don't know if I'm not saying that that makes me a cold hearted person, but you know, you're doing a job right? and, um, you got to do your job and maybe tell yourself later on the back end that, Hey, by telling their stories, um, helping, um, you know, provide um, light and information to others who might be able to help. Well, that was something. That was kind of the next question I was going to ask: Is do you feel like the work that you're doing by by shedding light on some of these crises and and various situations and 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 tragedies to, for lack of a better term, do you feel like that that has overall been a been a positive or because look I've, I've been called a racist and a bigot and a misogynist and i mean every name in the book because of some of the various political stances i've taken on things and and i would assume your story is not much different you've probably called been called every name in the book um but do you feel like the work that you do is spreading you know kind of shining a light on this some some of the stuff actually doing doing any good i mean it's got to be at some point that when you see these just the continued I mean, there's days when I do, because I do radio, there's days where I just, I get so tired of, of having the same arguments and the same debates over and over again, and nothing changes that I just go, I, I don't know if I can do this another day. I, I, you know, of course you wake up the next day and, and you get back at it, but uh, do you feel like the work that you're doing is, is, is having a, a positive effect? Um, you know, I hope so. I mean, I, my, what I do now, which is not that far from journalism right is just provide information facts and information that can help decision makers you know make better judgments and decisions right right um if if um you have you know mass migration uh asylum fraud happening which i believe is going on with um the, the central american um influx they're using they're using the asylum claim to get past border patrol. Well, that seems like a pertinent fact right. to get out there to find out a way to get out there. Does it help those migrants necessarily directly? Maybe not, but maybe it helps the American people and border security and um, you know our own citizenry with um, being able to. Um, 
know what to tell their politicians and their neighbors and with sentiment in general. So, I mean, look, um, not very long ago, the president was making claims that 3,000 terrorists had come over the border. And I knew that wasn't true. Right. Uh, they had it wrong. I knew what they did. They had added uh, airports uh, mm. to, to the border, and they didn't tell anybody that they had done that. So I, you know, I'm sorry. I wrote a, co- a long, right. uh, an elaborate column uh, describing that, why that was wrong, and how they could get it right, and where they could go, where the administration could go for, for right information, for the correct information, because that's really what matters. And right. My God, I was pilloried by the right. Oh, I can imagine. Like, yeah. I mean, like I had done some kind of a, you know, I was suddenly against Donald Trump. Right. Uh, you know, but but it had nothing to do with being for or against the president. It was just being for the facts. Yeah. And and I ran into that in in the uh, in the 2016 election. I was I was I just I could not bring myself to vote for President Trump. I certainly wasn't going to vote for Hillary Clinton, but I just couldn't bring myself to vote for for Trump, you know, based on I'm a former pastor and so my you know, my moral worldview is is a little bit different than 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 some and and I I couldn't get myself there and I I ran into that a lot you know how you know how dare you you know you're you're just handing that vote to Hillary Clinton and and so on and so um, yeah no I I I know exactly what that feels like um, if you know interestingly enough though as I've as I've moved forward and as as I've seen you know President Trump work in and do the things that he has done. Um, I'm, I'm fairly certain at this point that I probably will vote for him this time around, but that's maybe a different discussion. Um, as you have been involved in, in some of the national security stuff with, as it intersects with immigration, that's kind of the, the, the next thing I wanted to kind of talk about is how big of a national security issue is this? Because I believe my kind of my, just my, my conservative viewpoint tells me that if we, sacrifice our sovereignty as a nation and just allow this unfettered, unchecked, you know, immigration, legal or illegal immigration, that we give up our sovereignty, we give up our liberty, and the Declaration of Independence and all of these things then become irrelevant. Um, how, how, How much of an effect does this stuff have on national security? Or is it just we've got to deal with the immigration crisis and and until we do that, there's no point even talking about national security. No, I think it's all part of the same problem that, um, you know, we have, uh, migration legal and, uh, you know, eventually illegal, um, migration from places where we have terrorist, uh, uh, organizations operating. Right. So you have, um, you have, um, Syrians coming across the border and Iraqis and uh, Pakistanis and Iranians, and they're all coming through the border. We, we often find them without any identification whatsoever, and that is just simply a national security threat if you don't know who's, who, mm-hmm. who from those kind of places are crossing your border. Right. So, um, you know, we have to have special um, protocols in place processes and awareness uh, from a national security perspective about that traffic and um, how to deal with it in a way that's not 
reserved for you know Mexicans right. or uh, you know Spanish speakers. Right. Uh, I wrote a piece not that long ago about um, Bangladeshis. We have a lot of Bangladeshis mm. coming in over the border. Hundreds of Bangladeshis. They're spotted all the time coming over the southern border, and um, it's a poor country. Uh, another one. Um, and, uh, there's, uh, you know, smuggling routes from there. So, um, obviously, uh, that's going to be an issue, but, you know, Bangladesh has terrorists in it, you know, operating in it, ISIS and Al Qaeda and local terrorists. And we don't know whether the guys that are coming over the border are them. We just don't know it. So, um, I wrote another piece about, uh, Congolese that are coming from the democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, if you look at country conditions in, in the Congo, you'll find that there are thousands of tribal militiamen who are just absolutely rampaging through the countrysides in eastern and northern Congo, killing and looting and raping and pillaging uh, in ways that you would mainly see at a war crimes tribunal. I mean, just absolutely the most awful sort of uh, heinous criminality that you can imagine. Um, you also have an ISIS franchise working in uh, the Congo. So when you have a bunch of Congolese showing up at the Texas border and you don't know who they are, that's a security problem. I'm right. sorry. Right. It is. Yeah. So I guess the, 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 the big question, right, is obviously this is a problem. Obviously this is an issue. What's the – What's the what's the solution? Is there a solution? I mean, if you could wave the magic wand, if Todd Benzman could say, "Here's here's how we solve this problem." What is it? Well, for one thing, the smuggling networks that enable that migration from that those parts of the world uh, can be cut. They can be suppressed. The fewer the number. Of, of people that are able to make that trip, the lower the risk is to us. The higher the number, the higher the risk. That's that's my calculus. So the way to cut that number is to make it very difficult uh, to have fewer smuggling organizations uh, that are providing the service. The fewer smuggling organizations, the higher the cost for those that remain. So you can deter migration from that from those areas but you'll never stop it and so for the ones that you can't stop you need to have vetting protocols you have to have first of all an acknowledgement that that it's a security problem after the acknowledgement then you can do things like face-to-face -face interviews with those migrants and try to see what they're about try to learn what they're about mm. uh, do intelligence collection Talk to other people around them. What are they saying? What are they like? Dump their cell phones. Take their pocket trash. Call their home country intelligence service and see if they have anything on them. Mm. Uh, there are vetting things that can be done to for the ones that you couldn't stop from getting here that can at least improve your knowledge or your comfort level uh, before you roll the dice and gamble and let them in. Um, I that, think I'm not, yeah. I think you and I. The last time we talked, I actually mentioned this. I I have said for a couple of years now that I I believe the the solution or the issue or the 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 
I guess the beginnings of the solution to a problem such as we're facing is it's it's a three-step process. The first thing we got to do is secure the border. And whether that's building a a full-on great wall of China, you know, out of rocks and bricks and clay or whether whatever it looks like, we've got to secure the border first. And that means not just the southern border, but at the airports and and all of those sorts of things with the visa overstays and everything. The second thing we've got to do is we've got to make the process kind of streamline the process for those that are coming here legally to to help them move through that process cuz i've got a friend who married a woman from canada and we live in north dakota and it's it was just a you know a 5 or 6 year long nightmare for them that was incredibly expensive for them to go through all of this stuff kind of streamline that process and then the third thing and the the last thing we got to do is is figure out how to deal with the people who are already here. We we hear story after story about an illegal immigrant who you know stabbed a woman to death or an illegal immigrant who who got drunk and and killed a you know a busload of children or whatever the the story is. Deal with those people who are already here illegally. And but until we've done the first two things, there's really no point in trying to to corral all of the people that are here illegally right now. I mean, is it, is it that simple? You know, obviously the details of all that get complicated, but the, the basic concept, is it that simple? Well, I, I mean, you know, you have to prior, you have to first of all, acknowledge what the problem is and have enough agreement about what the problem is to then apply a solution. And the problem that we're having now in, in our country is that nobody agrees what the problem is. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like nobody can agree with the problem. Nobody can acknowledge that, you know, Congolese running in over the border is a problem. Right. Right. I yeah. Nobody, nobody says that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but in general, your ideas about, you know, streamlining the process and making it easier and, you know, all those things are, um, you know, they're valid. Those right. are valid uh, solutions. But, you know, getting to apply solutions is like just like pulling teeth. I mean, we just can't get anything done. Right. So it's, it's terrible. The, the whole thing is just so, um, you know, filled with emotion and hyperbole and, you know, we, you know, uh, really odd uh, interpretations of facts. Yeah. Denial, rejectionism. Let me ask what's happening. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that uh, walls actually work? One of the things that Brad and I have had an ongoing discussion about is it, it seems like there are two schools of thought. The first school of thought is every other place that we have applied a wall it appears to be effective. The other school of thought is when you actually dig into the statistics, what you're finding is it's not that we have a problem with, we do have a problem, but it's not that the biggest problem is people coming, just walking across the border. The, the, the big larger problem is people either overstaying visas or coming in through tunnels and so on and so forth. Do you have an opinion on the, the, uh, the effectiveness of a yeah. physical border barrier? Yeah. It's, it's my belief that they work and not just a little bit, they work extremely well for pedestrian traffic. Um, walls don't work in a military context very often. We always have, we have all these examples of, you know, somebody says, uh, you can't build a wall because look what happened to the, to the Atlantic wall and the, uh, this wall and that wall when the tanks crashed over it. But these are pedestrian walls. And I went to Hungary a few months ago and toured all their walls 
They had 500,000 people pouring in over their border from the Middle East and um, through Hungary, and they said, we're not going to stand for this, and they put up a wall. They put up a fence for, uh, you know, 500 miles, and it ended it overnight. The Israelis had a problem with Sudanese coming in by the thousands, and it was um, creating a demographic problem for them since most Sudanese are Christian or um, Muslim. Uh, they put up a wall on the southern Sinai, and it, it, it overnight, by the time they you know put the last chink in there, uh, there wasn't a single more. Uh, oh, we lost you there. But <laughs> it's not an either. It's not an either or proposition. There are other ways to get in, like you can overstay visas, like you mentioned. But mm-hmm. I don't think it's an either or proposition. I think we can we can address all of the different entry points at the same time. I don't disagree. I guess my question is where is where is the most critical area? And what is the most effective thing that we can spend money on? Because the, the, the issue that I think we run into is that you have a very violent, very, um, I'll call them passionate left that is against any sort of immigration reform. You know, where should we be focusing our efforts? I guess that's kind of why I ask about the border wall. Well, I think, you know, all um, countries – that have determined to put up a wall on their border, we're grateful that they did it afterward because it puts a level of operational control in their hands that you just don't have without it. It's not that people can't tunnel under it or climb over it, mm-hmm. but typically the kind of people who are tunneling and climbing over are like Olympic athletes. You know, they're young, right. you know, young right. men. And, you I know, mean, how many of those are there? There's not that many of them. So, the other side of that is like we pretend that we're going to build a wall and just walk away and go, well, there's a wall now. Now we're safe, right? And that's not – that's. I mean fine. We're going to build a wall. But the other part of that is we're also going to have you know drones that are going to fly over it and we're going to station it with patrols and we're going to have some watchtowers and stuff. Like that's how you enforce a border wall. You don't just stick the wall up and go, oh, she looks good. Now let us know if the fence breaks down. We'll uh, come out and repair you know, I mean, it, it's it's not a passive thing. So I, I think that um, as far as people scaling it, I, I think that it makes them pretty easy to spot if they if they have a barrier to go over. Um, I just wondered, you know, where the where the majority of those immigrants are coming I mean, through. But that I think that makes it, a lot of sense. It just puts the whole thing in slow motion. And right. so you don't need as many people to guard the border as you did before. If you've got a wall, you just have to have uh, you know fewer people who are able to go to the right place when there's a breach. You know, it takes time. And the other thing is that you're going to eliminate the, you know, thousand person uh, caravans that are just, you know, the walking across the border. That's a great point. You know, like grandmas and grandpas and children and all. So let's dig into that a little bit. One of the things that you hear from the left is, hey, these people, they are asylum seekers. They are coming and it's perfectly legal to sneak into the country and ask for asylum. They can't be deported if they're asking for asylum. Uh, what is the what is the answer there? Is are they breaking the law by coming into the country and asking for asylum rather than presenting themselves uh, to a U.S. embassy and and seeking asylum that way? Are all of these people actually asylum seekers that are fleeing a, a, a terrible, violent past and just want to make a nice, peaceful life for themselves in the country, or is has that been taken out of context? No, well, here it's just misunderstood. Um, the U.S. asylum 
law does not apply to crime victims. So when they come over and say, I declare it, you so legally you can declare asylum. Mm-hmm. Anybody can declare asylum and, uh, and there's, they stand a high chance of getting a claim started that ultimately will result in a no, no asylum. But the, while the claims open, they get into the country past border patrol. That's the objective. That's an abuse of the asylum law. That's, that's why Donald Trump wants to end asylum between ports of entry. Sure. Because it's being abused on a mass scale. Um, what, what is often misunderstood is that um, being a victim of um, MS-13 in Honduras is not grounds for asylum. And even if it was, and I, I, you know, you and Brad kind of touched on this at the beginning of the hour, but even if it was grounds for asylum, at the end of the day, you can't country shop. The whole idea of asylum is to is to find asylum in the nearest available country. So fine, you're being persecuted in Guatemala for your um, because of your sexual orientation or because of your uh, your preferred gender, whatever the crazy thing that they come up with that they're being persecuted for. But I mean, there are plenty of countries between Guatemala. And the United States that you could seek asylum. Why is it that the United States always becomes the first choice? And why is it they pass sometimes two, three, four countries to get here and we don't do anything about that? And as far as, you know, and and I guess what that leaves us with is how do we go about reforming um, the immigration process? Because while I agree that we sh- it should be easier to immigrate into the United States. And, you know, Brad, you were talking about your friend that had a difficult time, you know, getting married to to uh, his wife from Canada. But at the end of the day, do we not need to first uh, establish the fact that we have the right to the ability and the privilege to say no, who can come into the country? Then we can go back and revisit on being more lenient on yeses. Well, the, you know, the first thing to understand is that it's not that difficult. Uh, why they're picking the United States? It's it's that you know we're rich, mm-hmm. we we have a great economy, and the second thing is that they can, they can get through, so they can easily get through into the richest country by claiming a fake asylum that they'll never get, mm-hmm. and so that's that's what's happening. It's just it's just that simple. That I don't. You know, I've interviewed a number of these migrants. I just came back from Juarez and um, I interviewed uh, three of them. And I said to each one of them, you know, why did you come here? Well, for the American dream. Hmm. That's what, I mean, they came here for the economic uh, opportunity. That's not grounds for asylum. Right. So they used our asylum laws to get past border patrol. And that's why they're coming here. Other countries are not as wealthy. Uh, along the way, it's like if um, you're dr- if you're truly drowning, like if you're actually drowning, and there are five, um, you know, safety vests that are thrown to you on a rope, uh, you're not going to have time to a real person <laughs> drowning is not going to have time to pick the, the best one, the right, best you know? the best rope, right? <laughs> right. Here's, oh, let me get uh, no, not that rope. Which yeah. one? Which one of these ships offers the gourmet <laughs> meal? Oh, you have the peanut yeah. butter sandwich? Oh, you have the... Oh, okay. Well, uh, well, hold on. I'll just wait a couple minutes. We'll swim down in the ocean two and a half miles. I'll grab that one. Yeah, it's ridiculous, right? Yeah. But like these three migrants that I interviewed in Juarez just a few days ago, um, they're going home. And 
back to their original homes right. that were supposedly intolerable, not to Costa Rica. And that just says it all to me. There's nothing more to say. It's a it's a lie. It's the whole thing is just it's a lie. Yeah. Let me ask you something. As a person who has spent some time in Juarez, you know, the, the only thing I know about Juarez is that it was like the murder capital of the year for like three years straight because of all the problems that were there. Uh, has that has that begun to get any better? I mean, is that is the situation improving or are the cartels still uh, essentially running the police out? Yeah. You know, the Juarez is a is a dangerous place. And I I don't blame the um, migrants that are being returned there for for you know not wanting to live there. Although I will I will say that they are not um, there's not that much evidence that they're specifically or uniquely being targeted. Uh, cartels tend to kill each other. When they, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't really matter. So, they're not city specific. Just wherever they are, they yeah. tend to wreak havoc. I mean, I'm just saying that, you know, uh, as I as I was planning to go into Juarez, and I've been to lots of border towns, I just happen to know in the back of my mind that they're typically not just going after, you know, gringo guys, uh, you know, with blue eyes and just to murder them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you got to be – you're typically involved in the game somehow. I mean, maybe well, a, I- a, a stray round cut could catch me or something, but – I've heard actually some of the opposite is true that in a lot of these places, especially where there's high tourist activity, that the the cartels will almost protect the the Americans because they know that the bad, bad for public- business, the bad publicity, bad for business. So bad for business. Let me. But uh, yeah. But I mean, you know, look, there's there are lots of places in Mexico that are perfectly safe and calm. Yeah. Where there's there are not. I mean, you don't have to go very far from Juarez. To wait it out in a in a safer place in yeah. Mexico. Let me ask this to to kind of wrap things up here. Is as far as the security and stuff goes, and and the national security, um, I wanted to. And all of a sudden, now I'm losing my train of thought. I'm losing the question. I had it in my brain. All of a sudden, um, anyway, <laughs> um, as as we're we're talking about national security in general, um, is, is there. Is there ever a point where we get, you know, whether it's the CIA, the military involved in in all of this, or is that already happening behind the scenes? And then I've got another question about some of the uh, the the tra- human trafficking stuff that I want to ask you about as well. So let's start with that. Is there ever a point where we get, you know, full on military intelligence, CIA, and all of that involved and start addressing this as almost as an invasion? Are you talking about uh, Middle Eastern migrants? Well, just or? the just the the immigration crisis in general. Well, yeah, I mean, the the CIA is probably involved, and I know the military is involved, and that they are collecting intelligence. But typically, what those agencies are interested in are not are going to be you know MS thirteen and the really violent uh, gang people mm. and and. Um, you know, war criminals and things like that, uh, and there's plenty of them there. But we just we just use our intelligence services to try to figure out who they are and what they look like, so that when when they show up, we can nab them. Um, that we we they're not just slipping in unknown. That's obviously imperfect because we have a lot of machete murders all over the United States from the last um, time that we had unaccompanied minors slipping in from Central America, uh, you know, a, a large number of them were 
uh, gangsters and MS-13 and, and the rest. I think that's mainly what we're using those agencies for. Okay. I don't think that we're using them to like, you know, intervene military, you know, nobody's going to start shooting rubber bullets, you know, on our side. Right. Um, the next, know, just, yeah. then the next part of that question, I, I have been hearing, I've got a, I've got a couple of connections with the customs and border patrol. Um, and I've been hearing that there has been some, a lot of work done specifically in the world of child sex trafficking by the CBP ICE and, and some other organizations specifically at the request of president Trump and his administration that they are cracking down on some of this stuff. Um, and there's been in one, one re- report that I read, um, nearly 9,000 arrests in this particular area, but they're trying to kind of keep it hush hush because they don't want to scare off, you know, scare these people off and, and force them underground. And that the Trump administration has actually been working very, very hard at, at doing some of this stuff. Are you hearing any of that as well? Or, or is that maybe some anecdotal evidence that, that may not necessarily be true? Well, no. I mean, uh, sex trafficking is a massive international and terrible uh, scourge on the world, and it's and the United States is probably the biggest market in the world for uh, child sex uh, trafficking. So it is a it is actually a, um, a, a t- oh, we just lost our connection. Did we lose it on our side or did we, we lost it on our side? Everything oh. just, he, I think he's joining back up yet. There he is. Are you back? Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I lose you? no, that was on our end. I'm not sure what happened. It just disconnected. So the child sex trafficking is obviously a major issue. You said. Yeah, it's a massive problem and a terrible scourge. The United States is, you know, one of the largest markets for it in the world. So they're coming here with it coming over the border. They're, you know, sneaking them over uh, through the airports and every which way. Um, but I'm, I, I, I don't know that what we're doing now is above and beyond what we have been doing as okay. a country, our Homeland Security. Uh, I hope so. I don't think you can direct enough, uh, resources to that problem. I, mean, I have two girls myself and, you know, I've had access to the intelligence reporting on, um, child sex trafficking and the rest. And it's just, it's just, you know, you want to bomb somebody, when you read this stuff, you want to do right. something yeah. forceful. I mean, yeah. it's just that kind of a, of a, of a horrendous kind of a thing. And whatever the Trump administration is doing additionally, uh, beyond what we have been doing for the last, you know, 10 years on this problem is welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Todd, I know you're a, a busy individual and, and I should probably let you go. I think we've been we've over an hour here already. So um, I, I really thank you for for being so generous with your time. Uh, if if you want to find anything from Todd, if you want to read any of his stuff, you can go. First of all, it's just CIS.org is the Center for Immigration Studies website. Um, and if you just go to CIS.org slash Benzman, it takes you to his uh, bio and, and gives you links to all of his articles there um all kinds of information todd they can find you on twitter i'm um, it's just at todd benzman or i'm sorry at benzman todd um i'm assuming you're on all kinds of social media and and generally that same naming convention as well no i mean i have i just have twitter okay uh but but and i do have linkedin also oh, but, okay 
You can also um, find uh, the totality of my uh, work at toddbensman.com. Toddbensman.com. Awesome. And it's, yeah, it is T-O-D-D-B-E-N-S-M-A-N, correct? Yes. Okay. Correct. So um, other than that, Todd, is there anything that we missed that you think you feel like people just need to know about this this issue that just absolutely should be addressed that I didn't ask about? I mean, just offhand, I would just say that, um, you know, deterrence and deportation is what's going to end this crisis. And that's difficult to do in front of television cameras. Mm. And uh, but uh, but they're going to have to stay the course with it. Um, I, I think that that's the way to end this thing uh, initially. And then we're just going to have to wait till we have a Congress that is uh, more bipartisan in order to get anything real done with mm-hmm. it. But I'll, I'll just point out that um, when I say that, I know that that sounds harsh and those are kind of uh, draconian and um, I just, you know, the life raft uh, metaphor, I think, I think applies here. I mean, you're going to have to leave people in the water and that's just a terrible thing. Yeah. Um, and, and um Europe is a great example of, of how they, they ended their migration crisis that they had where two and a half million people came into the continent. What they did was they cut a deal with Turkey. They paid Turkey off billions of dollars to open up camps. And then every other migrant that came in, they airlifted them to Turkey. So that meant that you had a 50-50 chance of getting sent home mm. to Turkey and that ended it just yeah. the just the 50 50 chance that you could get deported pretty much ended that crisis. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, with that, Todd, I, I, again, thank you for your time and, and stick with me here. We're going to play the outro. I want to chat with you a little bit off uh, after the, after the show is over, but um, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being willing to, uh, to uh, share your expertise in this area. Uh, I look forward to doing this again with you. Uh, it's great to have uh, an expert like you that, that has been involved in, and on the, the front lines, so to speak, uh, to, to share uh, some, some information that, that, many of us just don't have access to. Sure. Anytime. All right. The Schmidt show is over. We will see you next week. Uh, it's, if you want to help us out, if you want to support us, of course, Patreon, all that kind of stuff uh, you can, you know how to find it. I'm not going to beg for money. Uh, if you do want to check out what Todd has to say, please go over to cis.org slash Benzman. You can see his bio. You can see all of his work. If you want to see the totality of his, uh, of his work as well, like I said earlier, you can see him at toddbensman.com. Uh, check him out, follow him on Twitter, do all of that kind of stuff. And, and do what you can to support his work so we can keep getting good, solid information on this crisis. The Schmidt Show will be back next week. Thanks so much. 